It was a blessing growing up with a, with a father who was an engineer by day and a church worship leader by uh, weekend and um, who loves the Lord passionate and deeply and in many ways what you see um, Sunday in and out is me standing on his shoulders. Dad, I love you. Thank you. Great job. Thanks for leading us in worship. If you're... Uh, If you're discerning, um, you sensed and caught a theme uh, for our time of worship together. Uh, and, and that theme is God is holy, right? Right. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to build on that foundation that we've sung into our hearts and into our souls and ask God, what does this look like to live this out? What does it look like to live it out in community? And what does it look like to live it out as individuals that God is holy? Would you pray with me as we go to his word together? Uh, King Jesus, we love you. We are absolutely um, struck this morning by your, by your holiness, by your, your set-apartness, your, your splendor, your beauty, your majesty. Lord, may they sit on us with some weight this morning. Um, not in, in a weight that crushes us, but that is, is tempered by your grace and that shapes and forms us into the image of Jesus. Please, please. As we wrestle with a difficult passage, Spirit, stir us, move in us, make us more into the image of Jesus, please. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Like you, I went to high school English, and I blame um, my wife as part of the people that make you read books in high school English that you would never choose to read otherwise. Um, part of those for me was um, the epic poetry of the Greeks, um, Odyssey, the Iliad, Enid, all, all of those. And, and, and if you'll remember back to high school English, unless you dabble in those now, and if you do, you're weird. But if you'll remember back to high school English, you'll remember um, the, the journey that's traced and the way that, that Paris uh, takes Helen of Troy and he, he takes her back to the city of Troy and the Greeks are trying um, for 10 years to get her back. So there's this 10 year long war that wages between the Trojans and the Greeks. And for 10 years, the Greeks make little to no progress in trying to get Helen of Troy back in their possession. She's supposedly the most beautiful woman in the world. And let's face it, if it's a 10-year war, she must have been. And so the Greeks, they uh, come up with, Odysseus comes up with this ploy, this trick to deliver a gift to the Trojans. It's the gift of a massive wooden horse. And can we be honest, who wouldn't want a huge wooden horse? And so the Trojans gladly accept this wonderful gift. And you know the story probably. It's the Trojan horse and in it there's, there's 30 men in the belly of this horse. There's two in the mouth. And as the Greeks pretend to go and uh, retreat and go back to their homes, they hide actually along the shore. And in the middle of the night, the men, the mighty men, climb out of this horse and they start to wreak havoc on the city of Troy. And the story, the, the myth, uh, points out something that's 
pretty central to every single one of us. And yet, it's hard for us to put our our finger on. And it's this. It's that the biggest threats in our life, the biggest threats to our life, to the abundant life that we are invited to live in Jesus, the, the, the biggest threats to our life are threats that come not from without, but from within. You see, for 10 years, they were knocking on this door, unable to make any progress, really. And you make one sort of ploy, one, one trickery, and you sneak inside the gates. And once you're inside the gates, you're able to wreak all sorts of havoc. Can I, can I propose that maybe the same is true for you? The same is true for, for me and the same is true, not just on an individual level, but on a corporate level. I'll say it like this, not just the, the threats internally to you and to me, but the threats to us as a church and to the church universal. The biggest threats will not come from without, they will come from within. The biggest threats will not be laws that are passed that go against the moral compass that we would like to see take place. And I'm not saying that's bad, but the biggest threats that are going to come against us are not from without coming at us, they're from within coming up inside of us. And so as we try to wrap our hearts and minds around a difficult portion of Scripture today, let me propose to you the main point of this passage is that the true threats to the inner life and the life of the church, so both individual and corporate, they they come from, the threats, they come from within, not from without. Inside, not outside. As you know, and as my father referred to, my, my mom was sick for, for the better part of a year, had no idea what was going on. When they finally did the autopsy and they, they found out, they were able to sort of pinpoint that she had a, um, a disease that was called perineoplastic syndrome. And what it simply meant was that the antibodies she was forming in her body were actually attacking her own body. And eventually sort of took out, not sort of, did take out her her brain. I want to propose to you this morning that, that all of us, in a spiritual sense, we struggle with a, a similar disease where there's constant waging of war on our souls. And we focus a lot on the threats that come from without. But I want to invite you this morning to maybe refocus a little bit to the threats that come from within. Because I'm going to propose to you that they are far more dangerous and far more powerful than anything that could come from the outside in. But what wages, what, what rises up in our own soul has the ability to take us down. And I love the way that G. Campbell Morgan puts it when he says, The church has never been harmed or hindered by opposition from without. It has been perpetually harmed by perils from within. I don't know about you, but I long to see God work and I long to see God move. I long to see revival take place and break out. And as I've studied revivals that have broken out over the course of history, every single revival that I've read about breaks out, not with the church looking out, but with the church looking in and saying to God, God, search me, God, know me, God, see if there's any wicked or offensive way in me and then lead me in the path of righteousness. That's how they happen. And so I want to invite you this morning, as much as we're able, 
to use this passage as a way to hold up a mirror to our soul and ask God, God, what do you want me to see there? Uh, Is there anything that's pressing in on my soul that's coming from within, not from without? Is there anything in me, God, that you want to do business with? You'll remember the words of Jesus as he talks to the Pharisees. He said, you're, you're, so, you're so concentrated on washing your hands and cleaning the outside of the cup, but that's not where the evil comes from. It comes from within, from within. And so I'm going to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 5. It is, um, my cards are on the table. These first 11 verses are terribly difficult to wrestle with, okay? This is, um, if I were to pick... Uh, a number of passages to teach on on Memorial Day weekend, this would not be one of them. If I didn't teach through books of the Bible, I would intentionally skip passages like this, which is precisely why I teach through books of the Bible. Because oftentimes there's things in there that as though I I don't necessarily want to say them to you, but God needs you to hear them and he needs me to hear them. And so let's commit this morning. Let's sit under the weight of the word and allow God to shape and to form us. Because what we're going to see is that because God is holy and because he loves us, he will passionately and consistently work to reform his church and his people because they are the hope of the world. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It starts with this interesting word we're going to come back to in a moment, and, and, and Dr. Luke records, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And his, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? He's going to ask a series of rhetorical questions. The answer is an obvious and resounding no. Sorry, yes. (laughs) So obvious, it's a rhetorical question. All right, so. Was it yours when it remained unsold? Answer, yes. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Answer, yes. Why is it? that you've contrived this deed in your heart. You've not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. He died. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. You think? I mean, thank you, Dr. Luke. You imagine word about that spreading? You're contemplating following the way of Jesus and joining this community. And you go, no, I think I'm going to reconsider. Great fear fell upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and they wrapped him up and they carried him out and they buried him. Can you imagine what that talk along that road was like? Bro, you got anything in your life you want to talk about? Anything you want to get out in the open? No? Okay. Verse 7. Verse 7, and after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who've buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. 
And immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last. And the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. Well, happy Memorial Day. We're glad you're here. What do we do with a passage like this? I mean, for for a week I've been sitting under and studying and just trying to absorb the weightiness of this passage. I read a number of commentators that asked the question, why did this happen? And I want to propose that maybe a better question for us to ask is, why doesn't it happen more? Well, why, why doesn't this happen more? Why doesn't God sort of act like this more in the light of his holiness, in light of his goodness, in light of who he is? Why doesn't he do this more? There's a number of things that I think God would want us to see in this passage. A number of comparisons that take place. They happen in the heart and in the soul of Ananias and Sapphira. But I want to propose to you that they happen in the hearts and the souls of people you interact with on a daily basis and most likely in you as well. So this makes this a scary, weighty passage that we want to enter into and under with both a recognition of God's holiness, but also his grace and his mercy as he seeks to lead us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So what happens? Why, why do Ananias and Sapphira die? Why do they, why do they lie to God? The passage says. So, so in this passage, you see Peter equating the Holy Spirit with God and personifying the Holy Spirit. This is, the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not an it. It's a he. It's personified in the passage for us. What happens? Well, there's a number of exchanges. There's a number of heart-level compromises that happen in the passage that I want to draw to the surface for you and invite you to examine your life as you seek to live in the way of Jesus. We need to rewind, though, to get a little bit of context for the passage as we seek to ask what happened. And in verse 34 of chapter 4, what you see is is Luke giving us another picture of this early community. If you were here for our studies of Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, it's a very similar passage. And listen, starting in verse 34, of the way he describes this community of believers. He says, and there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. He's describing this this community of believers who said to the Caesar, who said to the ruling authorities, the Romans of the day, he said to them, listen, we don't need you Caesar because we have one another. It was such a bold and powerful declaration that it shaped the course of history and eventually overthrew the Roman Empire from within. It says, And thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, um, we're going to hear a lot about Barnabas throughout the book of Acts, and every time he shows up, he's sort of, he's wearing a cape. I mean, the guy's unbelievable. He sells this field, the field belonging to him, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And then we have this really interesting word, but, 
And so what Dr. Luke wants us to see is a uh, contrast. He wants us to see dueling pictures of what it looks like to live in the kingdom and then what it looks like not to live in the kingdom. And so there's this word, this connecting word, but, and he sort of puts um, Barnabas up and he puts Ananias and Sapphira up and he says, you have a choice to make. How are you going to live? Now, Peter is very clear that what was expected of Ananias and Sapphira was not that they would sell a field and give all the money to the apostles so that they could distribute to any as they had need. That was not what was expected of them. The field was theirs before they sold it. The money was theirs after they sold it. And so the question becomes, why do Ananias and Sapphira lie? Why do they put a false view of who they are and what they're doing out for everybody to see. Well, let me propose two reasons. The first is this exchange that happens internally in them, where they exchange the grace of God for law. Now, if you're with us often, you're going to hear me beat this drum almost every single week. And here's why. Here's why. Because It takes a long time for this truth to travel from our head to our heart. Here's what happened. Ananias and Sapphira, they see Barnabas, they see Barnabas perform this wonderful act that's driven by the grace of God. Barnabas finds great joy in selling his field, cashing it out and giving the money to the apostles for them to distribute as they see there's need within their community. And so what Ananias and Sapphira do in their heart is they say, well, if that was right for Barnabas, then it's got to be right for us. If he did it by grace, we must now follow in his footsteps and do likewise. And so we start to see the effects that are devastating. When grace-driven generosity is turned into duty-driven legalism, Where God invites somebody else by his grace and his mercy to walk a certain road, to do a certain thing, to live in a certain way. And we all, with good intentions, go, if they're supposed to do it, everybody's supposed to do it. And then we start playing this game that we often call church. Um, Let me give you an example. As a college pastor, I loved nothing more than sending our students uh, to a, a mission conference that happened every three, three years. It was called Urbana. And Urbana was awesome. Second to none when it comes to um, getting a vision for what God's doing in the world, a global picture of the way that the gospel and the kingdom are coming about. But I'll tell you what, after our students got back from Urbana, I had some work to do. Because every student came back from Urbana and they felt like God's calling on their life was to what? Was to be a missionary. And some of them felt like it was their calling God placed on their life, but they wanted nothing to do with it. And they were caught in this tension of, to be a good Christian, I have to go live in the middle of nowhere and be a missionary And so what was by some, the receiving of the grace of God where they went sacrificially but with joy to the ends of the earth became law where every single one who was at that conference felt like, well, what I have to do with my life is go be a missionary. And there was great guilt 
And there was great weight that came when the grace of God was exchanged for law. What was God's calling for some became God's calling for all, and so we missed his goodness and his grace. Lest we think this only happens with college students, um, it doesn't. You see this in sort of church cultures, and each church has a different culture, but you see some of these things taking place where, you know, you have to study your Bible for an hour every morning, or you're not a good follower of Jesus. What was grace for some became law for everyone. Um, where the family has to look like this. You know, the the mom should stay home and the dad should work. And so what's grace for some becomes law for all. Um, Okay, so I'm going to pick on everybody. I'm just an equal opportunity offender today. Um, Tithing, okay, is is an Old Testament principle not affirmed in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, where um, we would never want to prevent anybody here from giving more than 10%. New Testament giving is by grace. It's generous hearts that are consumed by the goodness of the gospel where we go back to Jesus and ask, how much do you want us to give? See, there's a subtle turn that happens. And I want to propose to you that it has the potential to destroy where what's good and by grace for some becomes law for all. So the biggest pushback I get here is, well, Paulson, what's the community of believers going to look like if we don't have a law? I mean, what are, people are just going to be licentious and they're going to fly off the handle and you're going to have no, there's going to be no control over the way that people will live. And may I invite you back to the scriptures? Because the scriptures actually propose to you that transformation happens by the weightiness of God's grace. I can tell you don't believe me. So, so let's just check it out really quick. Let's just check it out. Here, here's what um, Paul writes to Titus. In chapter 2 of Titus, verses 11 through 13, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. Now that gets an amen, yeah? Amen. Right, and so that's often where we leave the grace of God. It brings salvation for all. Yes and amen. Now let's sort of pull up our bootstraps and get to work because we enter by grace, but then we're sanctified by law. Well, it's interesting if you continue to read. Training us. Wait, what trains us? Grace. It's interesting. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives um, in the present age, which would be today waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here, if you want to sort of break down this passage, here's what it looks like. God's grace appears. It comes on the scene. It intersects with your life and with mine. And it does two things. One, it brings salvation, which most of us would be yes and amen. Absolutely, we agree with that. Saved by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Yes. Paul goes on to write, grace does another thing. It also trains us. Read, sanctifies us. Makes us more into the image of Jesus. What does that? Law? No, 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 no. Grace. Grace. Trains us to renounce godliness. It trains us to renounce worldly passion. And it trains us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So if we are not renouncing ungodliness and we are succumbing to worldly passions and we're not living self-controlled, then it's not that we have too little grace it's, or too much grace. It's that we have too little. 
Now, either you're not tracking with me or your mind just went, wait, what? So Paul's going to reiterate it. He's going to say, for sin will have no dominion over you. Would you agree that sin had dominion over Ananias and Sapphira? Yep. To the point where they were dragged out dead. Sin will have no dominion over you for. So the reason sin doesn't reign over you is because you're no longer under law, but you're under grace. And we start to see some of the devastating effects that happen when we exchange grace for law, and it happens so subtly. See, I truly believe that transformation is the lifelong journey of discovering that grace is the foundation of it all. Of it all. And when Ananias and Sapphira, when they make that exchange in their heart, where they say, what one person did by grace is what we must do by law, it has massive implications for the rest of their life, as short as their life was. Huge implications. Let's see where it goes, because we move into this new and next sort of exchange that happens where integrity is exchanged for hypocrisy. So what God invited people to was to live in his grace and in his mercy. It was turned into law. Ananias and Sapphira, they weren't there in their hearts, so they started to pretend. They started to play the game. They started to pretend that they were further down this road of sanctification, of learning to live in the way of Jesus than they actually were. And they put on the mask. And the mask said, we sold the field. We sold the field and we're cashing it in. And all of the money, all of the money is sitting at the apostles' feet. You see, hypocrisy is is all about whose applause we seek. It's all about who we want to hear saying, well done, great work. But may I propose to you that something happens in the human soul when we live not out of who we are, but who we wish we could be, where even the applause that happens rings in our ears and haunts us because we know The applause isn't for the real us. So just envision. Envision a parade where the apostles said, you're never going to believe what happened. Ananias and Sapphira, I mean, they, they gave it all. They blessed us all and we're all better because of it. Let's have a parade and let's walk them through the middle of the community and let's just say thank you. And the weightiness of living a lie and getting rewarded for it, wages war on the human soul. You know it, and I know it. And a lot of times we live under this weight. Our soul starts to be divided. We lose our sense of self because we have the conviction that our true self, who we really are, see Ananias and Sapphira, they had a number in mind that they were willing to give. And what if we really believed that what God was after not, was not our perfection, but our honesty? How might that have shaped this couple's journey? How might it have redefined walking off that cliff and had them really just honestly come and receive grace 
like a waterfall was already pouring over them. So we have this conviction when we have to wear the mask and when we have to lie, this conviction, it says deep in our soul, the real me is not enough. And so we play these games. See, any sin, but, but especially the sin of hypocrisy, what it does is it breaks this connection between you and God and it leaves us with disintegrated lives. It's what the Bible calls sin. But it's what happens when our connection with God is broken. So what if God really just wanted you to be honest and not perfect? What if his grace was enough for you in your brokenness and in your need? See, it's better to be an honest mess than it is a dishonest saint. Forget who said that. Anonymous, they have some great quotes. The psalmist writes, God, you desire truth in our inmost being, in the deepest pieces of where our soul resides. You, you long for us to be open and honest. So the question is, what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? How do they get so far away from God's design that they end up getting dragged out and buried? Well, I want to propose three things happened to them. One, they forgot where the journey began. They forgot that they were a sinful person in need of grace, and God met them in that place. Hey, it's the way that the journey begins for every single one of us who starts to walk with Jesus. We admit our need, and his grace intersects our need, and he says it's sufficient and it's enough. One. Second thing that happened, they forgot that the journey didn't just begin by grace, but every step of the journey was walked by grace. This is why the Christian community, community of followers of Jesus, should be the most open and quote-unquote accepting community on the face of the globe. Because whatever somebody walks in wrestling with, our thought is either me too or but for the grace of God. Do you know, one of the most um, invigorating verses for me is out of Philippians chapter 3, I think it's 12 through 14, where Paul says, he says, not that I've already been made perfect, or that I've obtained all this. He says, but I press on. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I haven't made perfect, I'm pressing on. And then he adds in, and everybody who's mature should take such a view. I love that he slides that in. So he goes, all right, part of Christian maturity is realizing we haven't arrived. Dallas Willard says that saints burn grace like a 747 on takeoff. So the invitation to any who walk through this door is, you're welcome here. We're in progress. And think of if Ananias and Sapphira, instead of trading integrity for hypocrisy in their heart, would have just said, here's where we're at. Here's where we're at. And in their brokenness, found a community of people that said, we love you exactly where you are. When you want to give 50%, give 50. 10, give 10. 5, give 5. What if, what if we really convinced honesty is more important than playing the game of perfection? And the masks started to drop. And real freedom was found. 
So one, we, we start by grace. Two, we walk by grace. And three, we're designed to be part of a community of people that surround one another and say we're in this together. Bring your doubts. Bring your dirtiness. Bring your ugliness. Because our meeting happens at the foot of the cross. So you're welcome here. You're welcome here. The, the brothers in East Africa, they have this saying that they want to live in a house without a ceiling, implying nothing stands between us and God. And they also say, we want to live in a house not just without a ceiling, but we want to live in a house without any walls. So nothing stands between us and our brothers and sisters. I wonder if you're a person who's open to people coming to you and saying, I'm completely horribly imperfect. Let's walk together. Well, the passage continues, and I'm going to fly through this. I planned a four-hour-long sermon. And so, <laughs> verse 9, it, it ends like this. It says, but Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? So, now, here, here's the, what, what this word means. It's, it's literally to put on trial. It's the process of proving one's worth. And when it's ascribed to God in dealing with people, it means that God tests his people's faith and moral character. And what Ananias and Sapphira do is they flip it on its head and say, God, you're the one that's on trial. So God, you, you're the one who has to defend your worth. And you're the one that has to defend your beauty. And you're the one that has to defend your glory. He doesn't typically fail that test. Continues, behold, the feet of those who buried your husband, they're at the door and they'll carry you out. And immediately she fell down and she breathed her last. It's this really interesting word in the original language where it means that her entire life force exited her body. If you were with us when we studied um, repentance out of Acts chapter 3, especially verse 20, there was this word that talked about the renewal that comes through repentance. And what we said was that word is quite literally, the picture is being having the wind knocked out of you and being on the ground. And then life flowing back into your soul. And what we have here is the exact opposite is that this game turns into not something that brings life to the soul. That, that, that happens through repentance, where the welcome out of God is out, and we come back to his throne and say, God, I'm a person who's in need, and we change our minds about the way that we've been acting and living. No, this is different. This is the exact opposite. This is instead of, oh, it's, oh, and it's the life just sucked right out of them. Here's the, the picture that's painted, this exchange that's made. It's, it's an exchange where spirit and life are exchanged for self and death. And I'd propose to you that whenever this exchange is made, really walking with God over just following our own path and our own desires, that death is always the consequence. Listen to the way that Paul writes it in Romans chapter 8. He says this, For those who live according to the flesh and set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. So the question is, where's our mind set? Where's our heart set? Where does our soul reside? Is it in defending us? Or is it in walking with Jesus? He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Don't you love that invitation from God? Walk with me. Find, find peace, find shalom, find what it means to live whole, wholly integrated lives where you can be who you actually are, know that God's grace is enough, find healing for your pain, and find progress as his grace gently moves you forward. And we see there's life in the spirit. But we only step into that life as we're obedient to the spirit's prompting to, to, to walk with him. Jesus says, when this grace, when this truth grips your soul, it's like living water. Not that flows into you, but that bubbles up from within to streams of life. So friend, may I invite you, if there's places of your life that you're in hiding, may I invite you into his marvelous, beautiful light. To believe afresh this morning that his grace is sufficient, that it is enough. That this is a place where it's okay to not be okay. But please don't mistake God's grace for a lowering of his holiness, because it is not that. We still serve and we still know and we still walk with a holy God. And this passage invites us to hold up the mirror and ask the question, all right, are there things inside of our soul and inside of our hearts that are sort of stirred up as we read this passage, exchanges that we've made that God wants us to look at and by his grace step into the light? I invite you over the course of the rest of the day, over the course of this weekend, I invite you to make one of the 12 barbecues that you go to really, really awkward. Because oftentimes these are blind spots. You know why they call them blind spots? Because you can't see them. Ask somebody, is there anything you see in my life that you think I should take to the Lord? Acknowledge his holiness, rely on his grace. He showers it down over you. May it bring you out of hiding and into the light and walk with this beautiful, wonderful Jesus who redeemed you. As our band comes back up to lead us in our benediction, I want to point out in verse 11, It says, and great fear came upon the whole church. This is the first time that the word church is referred, uh, used to refer to this New Testament community in the book of Acts. It's the first time that this word, this, this literally the called out gathered ones. And you see, to be part of the church means to be part of God's project to refine and to shape 
a community into the image of his son that they may impact and change the world around them for his glory and their joy. That may sound great on the surface. Let me assure you, it's better than it sounds. But it's also maybe a little bit more painful too. Because like a great surgeon, spirit, and I think he uses this passage to do that. He, he reaches down inside of us and says, is there anything that I need to, to cut out that you might walk in the freedom of everything I died to give you? And because God loves us and is for us, he will work every single day at refining us and allowing us to sit under the glory and the brilliance of the waterfall of his grace that makes us and shapes us into the image of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing our benediction together? King Jesus, we love you. And we are so grateful for your grace that purchases our freedom. And so, Lord, even as we sing this last chorus together, if there's areas of, in our life that are still in hiding, that are in the corners that we would love to ignore and hope they go away, may you beckon us out of hiding and into light that we might walk in the grace that your cross paid for. May it shape us. May it define us. May it make us more into the image of your son, please. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.